About 13 years ago, when my grandson James was just three years old, I came into the kitchen and found him making pancakes. I don't mean that he was emptying a box of pancake mix into a bowl, nor was he just pouring out already measured cups of flour and sugar. He was doing the measuring himself and adding the oatmeal and baking powder, and since these were very fancy pancakes, the cloves and cinnamon and allspice as well. And as he prepared to crack and add the eggs, Rebecca, his mother, who was on the far side of the kitchen, stood still. Now, please hold on to that image for a minute (laughs) while we look at what I think is one of the most wonderful scenes in Mark's Gospel and maybe all of the Gospels. The story of Bartimaeus is a sort of lens concentrating the meaning of Jesus' last three years. First, you have to understand where we are. Ever since last June, our gospel readings have been taking us with Jesus and his companions through villages and along the meandering country roads of Galilee. But three weeks ago, the road swerved and headed straight toward Jerusalem. Today we are in Jericho, just 15 miles or one day's walk from the Holy City. The disciples have always known that they would have to go there eventually, and they've anticipated it with a mixture of exhilaration and terror. Whether it's glory or destruction they're destined for, Jerusalem they know is where they'll find it. The missionary journey is all but over. What lies just ahead is the outcome of it. This turning point is where we meet the blind man, Bartimaeus. The writer we know as Mark wants to make sure we understand the feverish momentum of this scene. He shows us Bartimaeus as one of the throng of beggars who always wait to accost pilgrims as they're actually leaving Jericho for that last day's walk. There's a big crowd traveling with Jesus now, and some of them are passionate followers, and others are just sensation seekers who swarm around whenever there's a scent of danger or a chance of violence. But for all of them, Bartimaeus is a nuisance, somebody too dumb to know there's something really important going on here. But Bartimaeus won't be silenced. And hearing his cry, Jesus stands still. For years he's been telling us what really matters, And now he halts all that urgent activity to show us. Call him here, says Jesus. And though Bartimaeus can see nothing and has only that sudden amazing stillness and Jesus' voice to guide him, he springs up. It's the movement of a confident, eager, already mostly healthy man. And he throws off his cloak, as Diana said, even though it's his most essential possession, because he uses it to catch the few small coins tossed to him by strangers that keep him alive. He has now given up absolutely everything. At this moment, you'd expect Jesus to heal him with a touch 
and then get on with his journey. But that's not what happens. This man, Jesus, who is known for seeing the deepest longings of the human heart, says to him, What do you want me to do for you? What a ridiculous question. Isn't it obvious? What could a blind man possibly want beside his vision? And yet Jesus makes no assumptions. He waits for Bartimaeus to speak his own need, and it changes in an instant from the words of an unworthy penitent, have mercy on me, to the insistent demand of a man who knows he matters, let me see again. And he does. His sight is restored because of his faith, says Jesus. But the other far more important result is the making of a new disciple. Jesus has healed many others and then sent them home. But Bartimaeus follows him on the way. We all know by now what that way is. There's no longer any room for us to get it wrong, though his disciples still somehow manage to. Just days before, Jesus asked James and John exactly that same question. What is it you want me to do for you? They were still blinded by their own ambitions, and so they asked to sit beside him in his glory. But he hinted at a far more painful future that awaited them instead. Bartimaeus can see now, and surely he sees what that future holds. But he is fully prepared to drink that cup and receive that baptism, to follow all the way to the cross. And all of this has happened in one stunning moment of stillness and absolute attention in the midst of frenzy. Jesus has recognized a man whose spirit is whole, one whose faith is so strong that he will cry out in spite of being scorned and risk everything in an instant and leap up to claim the gift of sight. He asks not for what happens, he happens to want for his own pleasure, but for what he truly needs in order to live out his life to the end. It seems to me that in this shortest gospel of all, Mark has drawn us into a story of what it means to be chosen to be disciples, as all of us are, and then to learn day by day what that means. During the long, wandering journey, we've watched the Twelve trying to figure out what they've gotten themselves into, and we've seen them gradually discovering two things, that it isn't at all what they thought, and that they aren't the least bit qualified for it. But they've resisted knowing both of those things again and again. They've refused to see, just like us. Now it's time to go back to that three-year-old pancake chef. (laughs) I think that what I observed on that morning has a lot to do with that moment in Jericho. I feel sure that there had been some major disasters on the way to that morning, Dozens of eggs shattered, the counter and the floor adrift in flour, moments of rage and despair. And even on that day, there were a few trails of flour here and there, and the pancakes, when they were done, were quite long on flavor and pretty dark brown and just a little crunchy. But, but with plenty of maple syrup, they were fine. 
And James was one proud three-year-old, already confident that he could take on just about anything. His father, my son David, confessed that he couldn't stay in the kitchen when this was going on. (laughs) It's not just that mess gets to him. He's a helper in a helping profession, like many of you. And he's grown up with two parents who are helpers. My husband, Loring, is constitutionally programmed to fix things for me, from a stuck jar lid to a rebellious computer. Here, let me do it for you, he says. I'm much more subtle in my helping. I straighten up his table settings, and I gently murmur that he might want to turn down the heat under the stew. As a result, I've remained totally incompetent about nearly anything mechanical, and it's hard for him to believe that he's really a much better instinctive cook than I am. And yet we have to make a conscious decision to take ourselves forcibly out of the room, to make ourselves stop helping when no help was asked for or really needed. So Jesus fills me with wonder in that scene. So much power to intervene, to do what he knows is good for us, and yet he surrenders it all to let Bartimaeus ask for himself. It seems to be how God works. It will be given to you, but you have to ask. You will find, but you must seek. The door opens when you knock. Help is always available, but God seems to want God's children to grow up to learn our own strength, to choose and to act, to make a mess of things sometimes, but be forgiven for it, and then to try again. And as we find out what we can do, we find out also what we cannot do, not alone, not without others, not without God. So that when we do call for help, it will be from our deepest needs, from those longings that terrify us, because they threaten every defense we've ever built to keep God and other people out. In the meantime, Mark's story suggests, we are like that painfully righteous rich man whom Jesus met just days earlier. He asked for something too, the way to eternal life. It was a worthy goal, but he was not ready for the answer. Give up all you have and come with us. And as he walked away sadly, Jesus looked at him and loved him, but knew knew that life would have to teach him some hard lessons before he could accept that invitation. Or we're like those disciples in last week's reading who asked for places at Jesus' side. That was the wrong goal entirely, but Jesus' response was gentle. Are you ready for my cup, my baptism? Because that's what you're going to get. He looked at them, those flawed, often foolish men, and he loved them too, knowing that they were already in so deep that they would be swept the rest of the way, ready or not, and they would make an awful mess. But even so, they would build a church. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks that question again and again. He helps us define our need. He lets us insist that we don't need any help, and he stands back to make room for those messy mistakes that learning requires. He gives us freedom to get it all wrong, loving us anyway, and asks again, 
as life's tough lessons make us wiser, so that someday we'll be ready to get it right. Bartimaeus throws away his cloak, his last defense, and asks to see again. What will it mean for him to see? Neurologists tell us of the panic that often seizes the newly sighted. Colors, shapes, patterns that make no sense and carry only confusion, so that often they beg to have their bandages back. As we all have learned to screen out many things, because they overwhelm us with fear or pain. I have a friend who went to India as a young woman. At first, the poverty was sickening, and it was everywhere. But after some time, she realized she was not seeing it anymore, and she had to come home. Seeing the suffering was terrible. Noticing her own gradual self-protective indifference was worse. If she let herself see, she might be compelled to do something, and there would be no end to it. With his sight restored, Bartimaeus would see what Jesus saw, not just admiration and excitement on the faces around him, but malice and contempt. He'd see a bunch of confused and shaky disciples. He'd see the human misery that lined the road and the tyrants and fools who had a grip on the holy city. And he'd see there was just one way for him, a way that was defined by love and its often terrible consequences. When you choose to see, then you may have to act to do something. If Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you, as I think Jesus does all the time, what would you say? I wonder if we could ask for vision to see the world and ourselves that clearly? Could we cry out for it, even though it would then draw us into the crucible of Jerusalem? Could we dare to hope that seeing clearly would show us not only those parts of our lives that we try so hard not to see, not just suffering and destruction and loss, but beyond those things and through them even, the Easter sunrise, and an empty tomb. So this week's reading distills Mark's good news. We have a Lord who is always ready to hear and heal, but leaves us free to name our longing. We have a cripple whose spirit is not crippled at all, who knows what he needs and dares to ask for it, who gives up everything and follows On this Reformation Sunday, we remember a time when church authorities saw it as their role to know all the answers, to tell us what the Bible said, to tell us what to do, or to do it for us. Imagine the mess they must have thought if we were actually to let all those people read Holy Scripture for themselves, and then to get involved in major decisions about the church. We're not just talking about flour and broken eggs. There is much, much more at stake. But today we honor some feisty ancestors who dared to trust God instead, who insisted that ordinary people should have the holy book in their hands, in their languages, so that God could speak to them directly through it. I like to imagine God speaking the message of love and being ignored or misheard 
I like to imagine God watching as the biblical writers smudged the truths and distorted the stories, God pacing and fretting, and finally just standing still to contemplate the mess. Sometimes appalled, sometimes agonized, sometimes amused, but always expecting that the Holy Spirit would someday get through to us and make us leap to our feet. What we depend on is not our getting it all right, but rather Jesus' words as he died, Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. Amen. Please rise in body or in spirit to join in singing hymn number 475. 